like I said, welcome. Glad you guys are here. Um, how many of you guys have a test this week? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Did you, okay, be honest. Be honest with me. Did you come tonight because you're like, escape from studying? And you're like, I can't take the library anymore. I can't take my books anymore. My roommate's driving me nuts because all they're doing is studying and I don't have a test this week. Because some of you were like, I don't have a test. Ha! You're like laughing at people, which I would not encourage you to do. That's mean. Um, but glad, seriously glad that you guys are here. Now, I want to just briefly let you know tonight um, is going to look a little bit different uh, than, than maybe a typical night. Tonight will be very informal um, for numerous reasons. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But um, tonight, I, I want us to take a look at a passage of Scripture um, in Colossians chapter two, we're continuing on in that. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to that, Colossians chapter two. Um, but tonight I, is, is a very important night um, in, in my heart, and I believe for us as a ministry. Um, and I'll explain that here in a few moments. But um, I want to explain really quickly why and how we came to the, I, we came to the decision to study Colossians through this semester. Um, a few months back, uh, maybe six months ago, before I even actually started the process of interviewing for the position for college pastor at Fellowship Church for College Life, um, the Lord had laid the book of Colossians on my heart. For some reason, just kept drawing me back to this book. Why? Well, in my opinion, it's probably my favorite book of uh, the New Testament for sure, but it's one of the most incredible letters, I think, that, uh, that is in Scripture because it, it addresses a wide variety of things. Um, but like we talked about in week one, as we kind of introed it, it talks about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but the sufficiency of Jesus is oftentimes in my mind and my heart lacking. I don't necessarily always view Jesus as sufficient for me, and I should. We should. But I love that it's just that gentle reminder. And in a season of uncertainty where, um, hey, Kels, will you hold your hand up really quick? Just so everybody knows, this is my wife. She's not a college student, but she looks it. No joke, numerous, numerous times I was like, where's my wife? And she's like, looks like a college student in the midst of college students. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird, but that's my wife. Um, so anyway, I'm glad she's here. Um, but as we were kind of in this season of trying to figure out, Lord, what does this look like? There, this book, this little letter that Paul writes to the church at Colossae was that thing for me that reminded me of the sufficiency of who Jesus is for me, that he's literally all that I need. There's nothing more that I need as I'm in this season of uncertainty. And as I was processing through, okay, Lord, this is great. I keep coming back to this though. Yes, I need the reminders, but I feel like there's more to this. Um, we finally got to June and the position was offered to me. And the first question that I was asked is, man, congratulations. What's your vision for this ministry? What's your mission for this ministry? What's your heart for this ministry? And I was like, ha, great question. I don't know. I don't know a single student. I've never been a part of a Monday night. I have no idea what the inside of the standard looks like. I don't know what the flip ground it is. Don't know what these small groups look like, but let me figure out what my mission and vision is because that makes perfect sense. It did not. But as I'm sitting, and I don't know, maybe you're like me, but for me, like one of the things that I'm very quick to do is just start working it. If, the, if I don't feel like the Lord's working quick enough, I'm like, okay, I just need to figure it out. Like, okay, what, where, where can I find something that looks cool, sounds great, and we can kind of move forward with just this trendy, neat, 
you know, let's motivate each other kind of uh, statement or passage that we can kind of root ourselves in. In middle of June, I'm sitting at the kitchen table one morning and I'm literally like almost in tears because I feel the pressure of trying to figure out what on earth are we going to focus on? And I get to the first couple of verses in chapter two, and we're going to dive into that in just a moment. But I realized really quickly that it's very simple. I think often, even as believers, whether it's a ministry or as an individual, we put so much pressure on ourselves and we forget the simplicity of what God desires for us. We forget the simplicity of what this relationship with Jesus should look like. Now, are, are, is it a long journey? Yes. Are there complications to it? Absolutely. Just like any relationship you have, but the simplicity is right there. And I felt in that moment, the Lord made it very clear to me, I'm not big on like these really cool mission statements that like, you know, hey, we're all going to get a tattoo later of our mission statement. Like, I don't know if anybody does that. (laughs) Don't do that. But this phrase, months before I had even thought about being a part of Fellowship Church, the college pastor at College Life, before I even considered that, the Lord had kind of given this phrase to me as a personal motivation and a personal desire that I had had that I was like, yeah, but how, what is, like, how am I going to do this? What does this actually look like? And it's very simple. It's to ignite an authentic passion for Jesus in this generation. To ignite an authentic passion for Jesus in this generation. And as I'm sitting there trying to figure out, wow, that sounds really sweet. What does that mean? And why those words? It wasn't like I sat and really just processed through. Most of the time when you make like, when you figure out a mission statement, there's like a drafting process, like a vetting process. You're trying to pick the right words to make sure it supports your, your, you know, uh, your, your foundation of what you believe and all these kinds of things. I didn't do that. So if there's anything wrong in this, sorry. But to ignite an authentic passion for Jesus. And the word authenticity is the thing that I want us to focus on for just a moment before we dive into the first verse here in chapter two. Authentic is key. We all could name, more than likely, we're not going to, please don't do this, but we all could probably name three or four people that we know who have a relationship with Jesus. And I'm not blind to say that there's probably some of us in this room who have an authentic relationship with Jesus, but don't know him. And that might sound kind of harsh. They might be like, dude, you're coming out swinging today. But that is literally coming from the mouth of Jesus, where he looks at the people and he says, some of you will call Lord, call me Lord, and I will look at you and say, I did not know you. And I don't want that to be us. I don't want that to be you. And that's not out of a selfish ambition for my own gain, but it is for my broken heart for you. It is from my broken heart for this generation but it also is stemmed from the possibilities that I see and the potential that I know because I've gotten to know many of you and I look forward to getting to know all of you, but I see that. And so the very core, the beginning of what what I wanna make sure that we understand is that's what we're going to do. And I firmly believe, and this might sound crazy to many of us, but I firmly believe 
that this is not just something for college life. This is not just something for fellowship church. I firmly believe that this is a mission that the Lord has laid on my heart and I believe our ministry's heart to impact our campuses, our city, our state, our country, and our world. And you might think, well, that sounds great. I'm not joking. You'd be surprised how quickly multiplication can happen if we all commit to saying three people, then they get three people, then they get three people. That's, that's how discipleship works. And we'll talk about that as we move forward. But I want to make sure that you have an understanding of why do we pick Colossians. And it's right here in the first few verses of chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes and he says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. Now, hang on for just a moment. Uh, Reminder here, Paul has never met anybody from this church. He knew nobody. Yet what does he say? He says, I have agonized for you. Some other translations might say, I have struggled for you, even though I didn't know you. Okay, he had sent out one of his disciples, one of the guys that he taught, one of his students, to plant a church. The guy's name was Epiphras. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And he planted this church at Colossae. Paul had never been there, yet he had this broken heart He agonized for the church at Colossae. Side note, which is just kind of interesting to me. I don't know if you guys follow uh, John Piper. He has this website called Desiring God and this Instagram. It's really good. Um, But Laodicea, Paul actually wrote a letter to Laodicea that we don't have, that was lost. And there was a topic that he actually did, which was really fascinating to me. The question was posed like, if we ever find that letter, should it go in the canon of scripture? And just interesting topic. It's on his website. That's just a like rabbit trail. But... He agonized for them. That's the point I want you to hear. He agonized and struggled to the core of who he was for these people. Why? Verse two. He says, because I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. So if you're wondering, okay, so what are you saying here? Our core values, if you want to put like a fancy title and a formal title on it, which I'm not big on formal, I'm kind of an informal person. But if you had to pick something that we're going to be about, it's those three things that we're going to be encouraged. Number one, now hear me. Encouragement is not always easy. Encouragement is not always uh, this feel-good kind of thing. Okay, encouragement, when you break it down, it literally means, yes, to inspire with courage, but it also means to inspire with hope, meaning that what you're sitting in, whether good or bad, there is something positive on the backside of that coming. No matter what the process is, from where you're at to where you're going, there's hope. And it's to spur on. So sometimes, okay, hearing the hard thing is the most encouraging thing possible. Sometimes, and we often, we put this title on it that, it's, that that's considered criticism, tearing down. And we associate the word criticism with it's, it's tearing down. 
And we put this fancy, like, passive-aggressive phrase in front of it, like constructive criticism. Like, no, I'm not telling you you're ugly. I'm just giving you constructive criticism. Change your face. Like, <laughs> y'all are like, did he just say that? I did. But we, we assume that encouragement has to make me feel good. Encouragement has to be a positive thing. And that is not always the case. Encouragement is spurring somebody on in growth. And it's done, and I love how Paul put these together. Notice it's in the same sentence for a reason. It's done because, it's, because they are knit together by strong ties of love. So they can be an encouraging people. Paul can say, I want you to be encouraged together because you have a relationship with each other. Because you are knit together by strong ties of love. Something that we have now adopted in our culture and our world, and this is very countercultural to even admit or, or not admit, to say, love doesn't mean condoning. Love doesn't always mean supporting something you disagree with. It means my love for you transcends whatever your decisions are. It goes beyond whatever decisions you're making right now. It does not mean my values have to be put aside, which is the, the, the cultural definition now of what love is. Love has to be, I accept you for who you are. And you can accept somebody for who they are. It does not mean I have to support the decisions you're making, but I can absolutely, surely love you well. My mom is a great example of that. Why? Because I was a wild child. I made a lot of stupid decisions and my mom knew it the whole time. I, th I didn't think she did, but she knew I was smoking weed. She knew I was doing drugs. She knew I was out with girls. She knew that I was going to the parties late at night, yet she loved me through it. Didn't support the decisions that I was making, yet she loved me well through it. How? She was intentional, and she always pointed me back to Jesus. Love transcends even through the lies that I have to support the exact decisions that you're making if I disagree with them. I love, um, this is totally kind of off the cusp. I didn't know that I was going to be doing this. And you're saying like, you brought a book. Well, yes, but earlier, Kelsey and I were sitting around talking and she's reading a book by John Max Maxwell. And it's really focusing on connecting with people, how to... Um, how to grow relationships with people, how to be intentional. And there was a passage that she shared with me that I was like, okay, that's, that's really good. Um, and it was just this little quiz that he had encouraged the readers to, uh, to do. Okay, and I'm just gonna kind of read a little bit of it. Uh, Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts uh, comic strip, developed an interesting exercise to help drive home the importance of relationships in our daily lives. See how well you do on this little, this little quiz. And he asked five questions, Okay. Name three of the wealthiest people in the world. Name three of the last five Heisman Trophy winners. Name three of the people who have won the Nobel or, or Pulitzer Prize. Name three of the last five Academy Award winners for Best Actress. Name three of the last five Grammy winners for Album of the Year. Now, most of us, we would hear that and we'd probably get maybe a few of those right for the guys who are like, oh yeah, I can figure out the last Heisman Trophy winners, like X, Y, Z, like fantastic. But here's a different quiz. It's interesting. Most of those other questions, you're going to say, I don't really know. I mean, I could guess, but I don't really know. 
See how you do on this one. List three teachers who aided your journey through school. Name three friends who have helped you through a difficult time. Name three people who have taught you something worthwhile. Think of three people who have made you feel appreciated and special. Think of three people you enjoyed spending time with. Now, more than likely, that quiz might be a little bit easier for you. Yes, some of those questions might be more difficult than others, but overall, that, that quiz, that part would be a lot easier. Why? Because we're not going to always remember how wealthy somebody is and how, the impact they had on our lives, but we absolutely will remember the people that were intentional to us. We absolutely will remember the people that identified us as valued and appreciated. Those are the people that will have an impact on our lives. So when I read this passage of scripture and I see Paul talking about, I want them to be knit together by strong ties of love. And in this moment, as I'm sitting at my table in June and the Lord saying, Aaron, this is what I want for them. I want them to be encouraged. I want you to come into a place like this and say, man, that was hard tonight, but I know that I'm being spurred on to greatness. I know that I'm being spurred on closer to the Lord and encouraged and pushed towards him, not pulled away from him and not told that you're okay where you're at. I'm not okay where I'm at. You're not okay where you're at. Eddie Mercer is not okay where he's at, no matter how much he thinks he is. We all have a place to grow and a need to grow. This is a lifelong journey of pursuing the Lord and every day is an opportunity for growth. And he said, I want them to be knit together by strong ties of love. Y'all, I don't want, I don't want a single person to come in and out of this room on a weekly basis and not be seen and not be known. I want us to be a ministry that learns people well. Now you say, what does that, what does that look like? Like that's awkward. Yeah, get over it. If there's anybody in this room that hates awkwardness, you can ask my wife, it's me. But if I've had to learn to do anything, it's literally call, if you're my, if you're my small group, <laughs> Hannah. So Hannah's in my small group, and I said this like four times, because, okay, how many of you guys are in a small group right now? Okay, sweet. If you're not in one, I'd really encourage you to get in one. Um, it's worth it, I promise you. But like week one, if you're new into a small group, week one is awkward, right? Please, somebody, don't, don't leave me alone like that. Is it awkward? It is, okay? Like, especially if you're new or you have new leaders, you're like, I don't know you, and you're hoping that I'm gonna open up with all of these things. The best thing that you can do when awkwardness is there is say, guess what? I see awkwardness. Like, I can't tell you the number of times that in conversations, I've literally just had to say, like, dude, I get it. This is really awkward because it's like the first time we've talked, and I'm running out of questions to ask you. Um, so can we just like, like get down like to the like actual conversation, like not just small talk that sounds weird, but you would be surprised how quickly somebody will open up and be vulnerable because you were willing to put in the hard conversation. You were willing to say, I don't care how awkward this is because you know what the tactic the enemy wants to throw into all this thing is awkwardness. Why? Because it keeps you in your shell. It keeps you in your comfort zone. And what's crazy to me is you guys, uh, as you are in college, you are constantly being thrown into the uncomfortable until you can maybe sophomore, 
junior year, you feel like, okay, no, I'm actually, like, these are my people. I've got my fraternity. I've got my sorority. I've got my club. I've got my friend group. I've got my job that's got, like, all my friends. And we can fit into that comfort zone, and we stop pushing ourselves outside of comfort. And guess what? When you graduate, it gets no easier. Family happens, marriage happens, and you get comfortable in a spot in the season where you're like, no, I'm good. I don't, why do I need to get to know anybody else? Because the enemy wants to separate you and I. The enemy wants somebody to walk into these doors every single week and to feel alone. There's 100 people-ish in this room right now. That should never be the case. So if I can challenge or encourage you in any direction, get to know somebody that you've never met before. And if you need somebody to call out the awkwardness of it, I'm doing it right now. So like what's awesome is like when we're done tonight, it's gonna be amazing to see like how many awkward like, so. Here's the awkwardness, right? But the impact that we can have not just in our lives. It's not a selfish gain thing. It's not a selfish ambition thing. The impact that we can have on our campuses and our families and our friend groups, if we can just humble ourselves for a moment and put somebody else ahead of us and be intentional, it's unparalleled. And the third thing that he says here is have confidence that we will all understand God's mysterious plan, which is what? Christ himself. Spoiler alert. Like he ruins the whole thing like that. Like, guess what? God's got a mystery, mysterious plan, Jesus. It's like, oh, well, it's like the worst movie ever, but it's also the best movie ever. Yeah, Jesus juke. Um, But Christ is the only source required, because he goes on to say, required for wisdom and knowledge. Verse three, in him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me ask you just a poll. When you came to college, when you said, I want to go to college, everybody's got a little bit different reasons for going to college. I get it. But generally speaking, when you said, I want to go to college, Why do you want to go to college? You want to learn, right? Generally speaking, I know some of y'all were like, I heard the parties were lit. (laughs) It's not good. It's not my point. But you want to learn. You want to grow. Yes, the end goal you want is that piece of paper that says, I did it. I get that. But you want to learn and grow. You want to mature As a human being, you want to step away knowing more than you did when you walked into school, right? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, we have the opportunity to unlock all the wisdom and knowledge that you could ever desire. But very few of us actually take him up on that promise. And we're wondering, how many, I mean, honestly, like how many of us have heard this whole, I just don't know if this is God's calling for my life. I don't know if this is God's plan for me. You want to know what God's mysterious plan for you is? He ruined it pretty quickly. Jesus. And you're like, oh, Aaron, that sounds all well and good. No, that's literally the answer. Pursue him. Study his word. Worship him freely. 
don't give a rip what the person to your left and your right thinks about you. It doesn't matter. He's telling the Colossians they don't need to look into any other philosophy. They don't have to go and do anything else. All those things are great. Hear me. I'm not saying like, wow, massive wave of college life students dropping out of college now because Jesus is the answer. That's, that's not what I'm encouraging you to do. I'm making sure our priorities are in line, that we understand where the source, the source of a wellspring and knowledge and wisdom comes from. Okay, so those three things, encouraged, knit together by strong ties of love, and have confidence that we all understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself, because in him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he goes on to say, I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I'm far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. He's saying, I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you. This is the first time in this letter that Paul is identifying that there's an issue in the church at Colossae that somebody is in the church trying to deceive people. And he's calling it out. And what does that mean for you and I? People will try. They will try to deceive you. Go on to verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. And I love this part, verse 7. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then, circle that, then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. So when your roots begin to grow down into him, then your faith is going to grow. So how do I do this? How do I, how do I like dive in where my like roots are going to grow deep? Like, what does that actually mean? Scripture, humility, prayer, humility, yielding to his plan and his purpose, humility, you catching the theme here? Others, that's how your roots, those are the things that will aid your roots truly growing deep into him. Remember what scripture says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And the most amazing part about this for me as I read this is the byproduct is gratitude. The byproduct of this is gratitude. So there must be something on the other side of this process that causes us to be grateful. I don't know too many people who look at Christians that actually, uh, Christ followers, I should say, who look at Christ followers that are super grateful and be like, I don't care why they're grateful. Like most of the time we're gonna ask like, Where, why, are they, why are they thankful? Like what does that have to do with anything? Why? Because there's something on the other side of this that makes this, gross word, ooze gratitude. I forewarned you so you didn't like me. I didn't say moist. <laughs> You're welcome. By growing down into him, by our roots growing deep into him, the byproduct is thankfulness. Verse eight, 
We're going to wrap up in just a moment, I promise. I told you, it's going to be kind of informal, and we're just going to kind of roll with it. So just, we're almost, we're getting there. Um, Verse 8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking from the spiritual powers of the world rather than from Christ. Now, I'm reading the NLT version. Your your version might be a little bit different. I just like how this one reads. Let me read that again. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Meaning, the enemy will put these ideas in front of you. And for you specifically... Being a college student on campuses all across Knoxville, whether you're working somewhere or not, you're in a fraternity, a Christian sorority uh, or not, whatever it is, these things will hit you in the face. That someone will try to capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Honestly, y'all, be, I mean, be real here. This is running rampant in our world today. It's called relevant truth. It is running rampant. And we think we can reason away morals and standards by explanation. He's saying human thinking or human tradition is also uh, a translation of this. That because we do something like we've always done it, then we're good. And he goes into that a little bit further in Colossians that we'll get to in a few weeks. Verse 11 and 12. I'm sorry, verse 9. Sorry. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and every authority. If your translation says complete, I want you to circle it, underline it, highlight it, whatever you've got there. But you are complete through your union union with Christ. What does the world tell you? You need more. You got to do more. I need you to achieve this in order for you to be validated. I need you to do or act this way in order for you to know that you've succeeded. We have to reach success in order to be complete. Paul's calling that out because obviously that's an issue in the church of Colossae as well. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You are made complete because of your union with Jesus. Nothing else, nothing else. Whole is what he's talking about. In you, or in Jesus, you are made whole. Verse 11, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And these next two verses, or three verses, we're gonna end with these. And this is the mysterious plan, Christ himself. This is why it matters. Because you were dead. You were dead. I was dead because of my sins and because of your sinful nature had not been cut away. Then, whatever that kind of transition word right there in your Bible is, circle that. Then God, 
Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our, sin, all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So not only is the victory yours, Jesus did a victory lap to rub it in their faces, to rub it in the enemy's face, shamed them publicly to say, no longer will you have this opportunity. No longer will my people be lost without a pastor, without a shepherd. Because of what I've done on the cross, I'm going to embarrass you, Satan. The only way that, um, the most relative way, uh, relatable way that I know to explain this, um, you'll get my story, but because I've like sat in a courtroom, not in the good seat, judge and me, this is how I picture this. And this is, this is what Jesus did. And I think this provides a, and we're going to end with this, but I think this provides an opportunity for us to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus did. Imagine yourself in a courtroom. You've been charged and you've been convicted of crimes that will literally end your world, end your life. There's no point for you to continue to live. So you've been charged and convicted and you are standing before the judge, which is Jesus. And he's looking at you in the eye. He's looking at me in the eye and he's saying, Aaron, here's, here's the list. Here's the list of all the things that you've messed up in. Here's the lies. Here's the addictions, the deceit, the pride. Here's all of the things. And when I add all this up, clearly what I see and what should be is death. That's what it is. That's what you deserve. And he looks you in the eye and he says, but, and he stands up and he addresses the bailiff and says, bailiff, I want you to take me. He steps down and he literally is put to death by lethal injection immediately because of what you did. That's the good news of the gospel that the, the punishment that you deserved, that I deserved, Jesus stood up as the judge and said, no, I love you and I'm gonna take this for you. I want us to understand and not just have a head knowledge because this thing means authenticity and authentic passion for Jesus. It takes us fully understanding and grasping that this is bigger than what we give him credit for. This is bigger than what we thought it was. This is bigger than your tests. This is bigger than your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, or even your families, my family. This is bigger than my kids. Because he looks you and I in the eye and he says, no, you and I will now be knit together by strong ties of love. I will encourage you in love and you're going to know me. 
And that's going to be all that you need. Let's pray together. Father, this, um, this heart, this desire that you've set before us as a ministry, um, it can only be accomplished with you. It can only be accomplished, accomplished when we get out of the way. And when we can humble ourselves enough before you to let you use us, and to work in our lives, even before you begin to use us. But don't even, let's not even start with, with works just yet. Let's, Father, may we get to a point where we can just stand before you and say, Lord, you, not, not me, more of you, less of me. But I yield it all. Father, I pray that we would be knit together by strong ties of love in ways that the world could look upon and say, I don't understand how that works among those college students, but I want to be a part. I want to know. How is that the case? I want to know. Father, that we would be encouraged, that we would hear positive encouragement, that we would hear constructive encouragement that pushes us closer to you. And God, because of the love that we have among each other, we would know that we are now closer to you than we were when we walked in. And Father, as the world throws all of these things towards us, like false teachings, worldly philosophies, or truths that are just simply relevant truths that we don't even really need to hear, but we can't avoid it. Lord, I pray that you would continue to remind us of the answer to that question, what is this mysterious plan of yours? And it is Jesus. The answers that we need are found in you alone. Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful and excited that we have this opportunity to be used by you and to have a family like we do here in College Life. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.